0: But now we're back here in this building. I'm grateful for that also. And if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks together, you know that we have been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Jonah. Uh, Two Sundays ago, we studied, well, it would be three Sundays ago now, we studied chapter one, where Jonah was given a command to go cry out against the wickedness in the ancient city of Nineveh. If you're a geography buff, Nineveh is located on the opposite bank from the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. Uh, Jonah, though, refused to go because he knew that the reason why God wanted him to warn the Ninevites was because God intended to show them mercy, and Jonah didn't want anything to do with that. Just to make it very plain, he hated the Ninevites. And he didn't want them to repent, he wanted them to be destroyed. So, in a hissy fit move, he quits his job as prophet, and really, he quit his God too. He bought a one-way ticket by boat to Tarshish and told the sailors that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But although Jonah was ready to quit God, God does not quit on Jonah. God sends a storm to apprehend his fugitive prophet, and we read about how the sailors on board figured out that Jonah was the cause of all the difficulties they were in. And Jonah's suggestion was that they toss him overboard into the sea. They do that, the sea goes quiet. But Jonah's trouble continues as he's sinking down, down into the ocean. It says he got to the bottom of the mountains and the seaweed was wrapping around his head. He called out to God to deliver him, to save him. And how did God choose to save him? He sends along a great fish. And we've talked in previous Sundays about the reality of what that would have meant for him. It's a claustrophobic, horrifying ordeal for three days. Just really, just short of dying, I can't think of anything worse than what Jonah experienced for three days. From within the belly of the fish, Jonah was conscious for a long enough period of time to pray a prayer of thanksgiving to God for delivering him from drowning in the sea. And after three days and three nights in the fish, God spoke to the fish and we're told that it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. In the midweek email, I talked about a few different Bible stories that we know from the Old Testament. You're familiar with the story of Noah's ark or maybe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and of course Jonah. And all three of these stories have something in common with our current sit- situation as followers of Jesus today. In all three of those stories, God gave foreknowledge to a servant of his that he intended to visit wrath, judgment, destruction on the wicked. And in all three stories, he called them to go and preach repentance to the people. And we're in a very similar set of circumstances, aren't we, church? Has God not told his people today about a coming day where he intends to visit judgment and wrath on the wicked? He has. And has he not, like us, like those Old Testament figures, told us to go and warn them to repent? Well, he has. He has. And so we're in a very similar set of circumstances to Jonah. And so when we study the book of Jonah, I I find myself (laughs) continually having these kind of uncomfortable questions where I'm like, okay, God, I see what you're saying there. And that's kind of true about me too. And this morning, what I want you to see, Jonah chapter 3 is a very hopeful and encouraging chapter. Uh, It's almost like God paints a caricature of somebody who is as unlikely or as unwilling a participant in what God is doing as can possibly exist, but he does it anyway, and that God uses him anyway. Fellow Christian, the thing I find so hopeful about this is aren't we all somewhere on the spectrum of imperfection as followers of Jesus Christ? Uh, we've been talking about how the main point of the book of Jonah is not that God is merciful, though he is. The main point of the book of Jonah is that we should be merciful like he is merciful. It's not that God just commands us to do something and in our obedience, our our volitional will, he is not satisfied if our heart is not in it. And so his pursuit of Jonah is really a pursuit of Jonah's heart. But what I want you to see is that in chapter 3, Jonah begins moving in obedience before his heart catches up, and God is still meeting him there. The main thing in chapter 3 for me is that you don't have to wait until you are perfect or fixed or your heart is just right for God to begin using you. So what I want to do is I want to look first at the messenger and his message, this guy Jonah and what he has to say in chapter 3, and then I want to finish by talking about the response to all that. We pick it up here in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And now in verse 1 and 2, which I just read, we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you glad for the God of second chances? Aren't you glad for a God whose mercies are new every morning? Aren't you glad for a God who on the tail end of every failure you've ever committed as a follower of Jesus, his words still came to you? That he still received you back as a worshiper? Aren't you glad for this wonderful thing that the voice of the Lord came to Jonah a second time? I sure am. Jonah gets his old job back. When we concluded our study of chapter 2, I pointed out that God does not just save us from things, but he also saves us to things. And it's true, fellow Christian, that we have been saved from sin, death, and judgment. But the Bible is clear that in addition to being saved from those things, we have also been saved to some other things. Jonah was saved from the sea and then from the belly of the great fish. But verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 tell us that God had also saved him to a life of continued obedience and service. And we need to pay attention to this very important fact. Because I think there are a lot of people in the church today who act like Jonah is a couple chapters too long. (laughs) Right? They are truly grateful. They are. They really are. If you talk to them about Jesus and the gospel, they mean it. They are sincere. They are so grateful for their salvation that they've been saved. But that's not the end of Jonah's story. It's not the end of our story. Uh, Some people are living out their Christian experience, their walk with Jesus like they have been vomited up, but now they're just going to hang out on the beach celebrating their deliverance. They've been vomited up, but there is no Nineveh to march to. And this is the way I think a lot of Christians talk about salvation. They say, I was saved on such a date, at such a time, in response to such an invitation. As though salvation is all past tense. But fellow Christian, you have not been just saved from stuff. You've been saved to some stuff. Jonah was vomited up, and then he went. We've been vomited up (laughs) out of sin and death. And are we just partying on the beach, or are we marching to Nineveh? I think that's a question that chapter 3 has to confront us with. After Jonah is back on land, God will send him again to Nineveh. Jonah goes and preaches judgment, and then verse 5 it says, the people of Nineveh believed God. We're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. We're going to come back to the response of the Ninevites in just a moment. But what I want us to do is look at this messenger Jonah, and at his message before we get there. Let's just take a look again at how God has prepared Jonah for this moment. Jonah disobeyed God. God put him under a threat of destruction. He said, I went down to the the root of the mountains, the seaweed was wrapped around me, I was dead, I was in Sheol, I would never look on the temple again. He's under threat of destruction. But then Jonah cries out in his distress, and God answers him and delivers him. God is merciful to him. God gives him what he does not deserve. I mean, you're right. God, yeah, right, that's right. (laughs) I said that right. And so it was with the Ninevites. They disobeyed God. God put them under threat of destruction. They cry out in their distress, and God answers them and gives them a new lease on life. We're going to see all this at the end of the chapter. So God showed mercy to Jonah so that Jonah would learn to show mercy to the Ninevites. And the book, of course, is not really about the Ninevites. Not really. If we were just studying this book as a textual analysis, if an English teacher sat down and was going to break out this book, would it be about the Ninevites? No, Uh, The book devotes maybe 10% of its content to the Ninevites and 90% to this man Jonah. This book is really and truly not about, the main point is not that God is merciful to the Ninevites, but that God is calling his people to be merciful as he is merciful, that God is pleased with our service when our hearts reflect his heart, when we love the things he loves, and when we stand opposed to the things he stands opposed to. So this is the main point. The entire book recounts the story of God's merciful, patient attempts to transform a hard-hearted prophet named Jonah so that he would be more and more, by degrees, like the God who saved him. Uh, I've I've been spending my devotional time in the Sermon on the Mount recently, and in chapter 5, of the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew chapter 5, two things that Jesus said there really jumped out at me as I was thinking about Jonah. In the Beatitudes, it said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then later in the same chapter, it says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Both of those talk about uh, the idea of being peacemakers, Or loving your enemies, seeking reconciliation, as bearing a certain family resemblance with the father. The problem with Jonah is that he's trying to serve God, but not as a son. He's not interested in having any spiritual likeness or family resemblance with the family of God. Uh, Many people who have held my newborn baby, Oliver, they look at him and go, Oh, I could just tell this is a Tate baby. (laughs) They they all look the same when they're really little. My kids do. I think later as they get older they diversify, they have a different look, but when they're really little they just have a tatishe look about them, you know. And it's true that there is also, you know, in certain families there's a resemblance. You can tell, oh, you're uh, whatever, you're this, you're that. But what this is saying in these two statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is that there is a family resemblance. There is a spiritual likeness to those who are truly sons of the Father. And Jonah doesn't look a thing like his dad. That's the problem. That's the problem with Jonah. He's acting at times like a son, but he doesn't look like one. (laughs) His heart is so wrong. He does not love his enemies. He does not pray for those who persecute him. He is not a peacemaker. He is a destruction bringer. He is a wrath pronouncer. He doesn't look a thing like his dad, and that's the problem with Jonah. Jonah's heart is the main object of God's activity in this book. We've made this point in spades. I don't mean to beat this drum until it's in tatters, but it really is kind of the main point, so I have to keep saying it. (laughs) That's not to say that God is not concerned with the Ninevites or their hearts. Clearly he is, but the book of Jonah devotes more time to Jonah's heart than anything else. And chapter 3 tells us something really interesting. Jonah, after receiving a second command to go to Nineveh, obeys promptly. But his heart hasn't changed one bit. We'll see that when we study chapter 4 next week. He goes, but he still hates. And he still hopes, not that they'll repent, but that they will be destroyed. His heart is still wrong. It's just his arm has been twisted into compliance. But here's why Chapter Three is again such a hopeful block of Scripture for all of us servants of God who know the truth with our minds, but whose hearts are lagging behind a bit. For those who lack a desire to go with the commands of God, know this: in the Christian life, we are always advancing with a limp, always, always. It's you're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be finished until the day of Christ. Uh, Philippians 1.6 that says that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion even unto the day of Christ. There is a day coming where you will be complete. You'll be finished. (laughs) But for now you remain a desperate fixer-upper. Just (laughs) one of those uh, things on Zillow that's less than $10,000. That's what I am, you know. I'm a fixer-upper. I am not anywhere near perfect. I am somewhere on that spectrum far away from where Jesus is. And you are likely as well. And so when we come to Jonah and we see that God is concerned with our hearts, we might just despair and say, what do I do? I'm not, my heart's totally wrong. I can't do anything right, apparently. So pay attention to chapter 3. Jonah is advancing with a limp. Jonah's heart, which again is the main object of God's concern, has not changed. And so God is not done pursuing him and working on him. But Jonah's conduct has changed. And more often than not, a change of heart will follow a change in behavior. And we shouldn't wait until we're fixed to follow God in obedience. If today you know the right thing to do, but you hate that it's the right thing to do, (laughs) you shouldn't wait until you feel differently. You should begin doing the right thing and asking God to change your heart also. God is continuing his work of shaping Jonah's heart even as he ministers through Jonah. No, that's not putting it quite right. Not through Jonah, but despite Jonah. That's more accurate. Remember, in the Christian life, there are only two roads. There's the road of disobedience toward Tarshish and the road of obedience towards Nineveh. And I'm telling you, friends, it is better to limp toward Tarshish. No, better to limp towards Nineveh than run toward Tarshish. Boy, I'm getting my words mixed up here today. Jonah has not yet learned the fullness of all that God wants, him, wants to teach him in this. And he's continuing imperfectly in his calling. But he is limping in the right direction now. And that does count for something, doesn't it? But what a strange messenger he is. In the 1800s, there was a man serving on a whaling vessel. I think it was off of Argentina. This is a documented fact. You can Google it. And they were trying to uh, harpoon a sperm whale. He fell overboard. They eventually got the, har- the harpoon sperm whale up to the side of the boat. They began processing the animal. And when they opened his stomach contents, inside was the sailor who had fallen overboard. He'd been inside that whale for not three days, but for a period of time. And his skin was permanently bleached white in places. He was very splotchy for the rest of his life. The gastric acid in the stomach contents of the whale had had this, um, I guess, bleaching effect on his skin. He was a very bizarre-looking man, and he took him a long time to get his sight back. And so if Jonah had spent three three days in the digestive system of an animal, I don't know what animal it was. The Bible doesn't specify. I think that that would have had a a physical effect on his appearance. I think he would be a different looking kind of dude. And also, so that's one thing for starters, this really weird looking guy is going to show up in Nineveh. But he's strange in other ways too. He's a foreigner. And Nineveh is not some podunk little town. This is maybe the leading city of its day. This is the capital city of a great empire. This is a country bumpkin showing up in Paris or London or Washington, D.C., and he begins walking around. Have you ever heard a street preacher pronouncing judgment in a big city? That's Jonah. Have you ever paid attention to those people? No, because <laughs> they look a little crazy. And here's Jonah, bleached white probably from the stomach acid of a fish, a foreigner with a strange accent showing up and talking. This guy back in his home country had been a prophet of God, an eagle in a hummingbird's nest. But now he finds himself a hummingbird in an eagle's nest. Weird, different. He was odd and different, and I think so too are Christians today very often. We have a different way about us than the surrounding culture that is sometimes mocked. But look at the message of Jonah. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I think you guys would have really liked having Jonah as your pastor. His sermons are just one sentence long, (laughs) but they are kind of repetitive, you know. Jonah arrives in Nineveh, and he begins walking through the streets, calling out over and over again like a town crier, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Over and over and over again for three days. That's how long it took him to walk throughout the city making this pronouncement. Back in verse 2, God had commanded Jonah to call out the message that I tell you. And these are God's own words that he gave to Jonah to call out over and over again throughout this great city. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so the first thing we need to notice about this message is that it is made up of God's words. The messenger of God only has authority when he or she stands under the authority of the word of God. Jonah does not bring his own words or his own wisdom. He faithfully delivers the message God gave him. No more, no less. I often think about the disciples of Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus did the miraculous work of breaking the bread and the fish, and then the disciples just simply faithfully took from Jesus what he had miraculously provided and delivered it. That's your job. That's Jonah's job. Jonah is not doing anything miraculous here. God says, I want you to go to this place and say what I told you. He goes there. He says what he told him. Jonah here is a picture of those disciples receiving the bread and the fish and handing it off to the hungry people who needed it. He's not a miraculous person. He's a wildly imperfect person. His heart is wrong. His message is not clever. This is not a TED talk that he's giving. There's nothing about it that's compelling or enjoyable. It is just him saying one sentence over and over and over again. I always encourage people to memorize scripture. I I try to do this myself. In fact, that's what I'm doing in my devotional life right now. And one of the reasons why I do that is that I think you'll find that when you're speaking to someone or praying for them, that and you're able to speak God's words to them or over them in prayer, it is accompanied, I think, by a different kind of power than comes from our own words or our own reasoning. Jonah's sermon was just one sentence long, just eight words. But my goodness, guys, look at what it does. A whole city turns and repents. This is the mysterious power of God's words. And because we know that, his words should always be on our lips when we pray and when we share with others. Men and women recognize God's words when they hear them. His words are accompanied by an inner testimony that makes the heart sit up and listen. This happens in a mysterious way. The soul recognizes God's words as such and gives them the attention that they are due. I think about Paul when he said to the Corinthians, he said this, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in that passage, Paul is saying that some... In that passage, he's saying, I didn't come to you with this really fancy, highly educated presentation. (laughs) Nobody was impressed with my speaking ability. I came to you with the words God told me to say. I came to you talking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is what resulted. I also think about Jonah's poor motives, Jonah is not, his heart is not right even as he's saying the words. He's saying these words to the Ninevites, actively hoping that they respond with unbelief. But I think about Paul saying this. He said in Philippians 1 Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Aren't we all this... uh, Don't we all, even as we become Christians and we're putting on the new man, putting off the old man, there is still... It's still true that in our inner world, we still have these misshapen longings, these disordered desires. Even as I'm preparing to preach this morning, I'm this mix inside, and it's an awful inner world that we all share, where I'm like, God, I want you to to speak today to your people. I want you to give them something that will be useful and helpful and that will glorify you. And then there's another part of me that's going, I hope it comes off well. (laughs) I, I hope people think I'm, I'm great. The, the, those things are constantly warring in me. And I'm so grateful that Jonah doesn't have to be perfect before God will use him. I'm so glad I don't have to be. You don't have to be. Even people who are horribly broken but are limping in the right direction, God uses that. God uses you in the midst of your wild imperfections. I'm not saying we should ever just accept that. No, of course not. There's no delighting in that. But just please be encouraged that while you're being made like Jesus, you don't have to be like Jesus today to be of use to Jesus in, in perfection. You're not perfect, and you won't be till he comes back. But he still is pleased to use us. One other word about this message, briefly. Notice where he took the message. Jonah didn't put a sign up on the street saying, come to a certain place at a certain time and I'll tell you God's words for the Ninevites. He went out where? Into the streets, in the marketplace, and he preached to folks wherever he found them. And there's something here to to notice. If we, like Jonah, have been given foreknowledge about God's intention To bring about a day of judgment and wrath. And we have been called to go out and proclaim that truth. And to call sinners to repentance. To call people out of darkness into light. It won't do to invite people to come somewhere to hear that. We have to go out there. In the relationships I have. In the midst of the places I circulate and, and rub shoulders with other people. I need to take that message to the streets. We do. We do. And that's how Jonah does it. I think that's something very worthwhile seeing here. But now let's talk about the response to this message. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Please note, they, said, they did not say that they believed Jonah or the words of Jonah. It says they believed God. They rightly deduced that this was a message from God. God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. There were young people, there were old people, there were wealthy and poor, there were slaves, there were men and women, prisoners, opinionated people, open-minded people. In this city there were the mentally ill and the drunks. There were the beautiful, the ugly, the drunks, the artists, the engineers, business owners, soldiers, tourists. There were people in this city who think everybody should wear masks and people who think nobody should ever wear a mask, ever. They were all here in this city, sharing the space together. And it says here that all of them turned and repented. It's amazing. If you've spent time on Facebook (laughs) in a comment thread, when was the last time you saw people change their mind on something significant? You may have seen it, but I'm willing to bet it was rare and noteworthy. Have you ever seen an entire city turn and repent? Not me. <laughs> this has to be one of the greatest miracles. This is by far a greater miracle than the fact that a man was swallowed by a fish and swallowed up and vomited up. That's what gets all of everybody's attention in the story of Jonah. But this, this is the eye-popping miracle. If you've ever tried to persuade anybody of anything this is the thing that should grab our attention this mass city-wide change of heart has to be one of the greatest repentant turnings ever documented look at the need around us today and even in some of our own homes and families and it calls this need this great desperate need that surrounds us calls for miraculous divine intervention. We need a miracle today in the communities that we live amongst, in this nation that we live in, in this world that we inhabit. And maybe this morning God has laid on your heart a burden for a person or a people. You feel like God has been speaking to you and confronting you with his desire that you would go and speak to those people or that person about him. But your heart just isn't in it. Maybe you don't like the person. That was true for Jonah. Maybe you just doubt that if you went to them, anything would come of it, and you would be left looking foolish, silly. Maybe you enjoy the relationship, and you fear that introducing Jesus and the gospel into it would make something that's easy and nice and make it strained and damaged. You're afraid you'll lay it all out there, and they'll laugh, or worse, get annoyed and angry. Maybe they won't just reject what you say, but maybe they'll reject you personally. But I, I, we, again, I think we have to look at this story and see what God does here. I suspect that God had been working in Nineveh long before Jonah ever got there. He'd certainly been working in Jonah in the, three days bef- in the days before he arrived there in that city. And it stands to reason that he was also active during that time preparing the Ninevites. And that work of preparation may not have been visible to anyone but God. It was probably going on out of sight and out of view. What I'm about to share with you is very speculative. This is not the Bible. This is just something that historians have cobbled together, and I I don't know how much of it is accurate, but consider this. Uh, Many scholars believe, and again, this is not the Bible. I am dipping into speculation a little bit, that these events documented in Jonah occurred during the reign of Asherdan III. He was king in Nineveh at a time that probably coincided with Jonah's arrival. At this time in the reign of Asherdan III, they had suffered some humiliating defeats. An alliance of hill tribes had decisively beaten the Assyrian armies and had pushed within a hundred miles of Nineveh itself. It was humiliating and also shocking to the very confident Assyrians. It had shaken their confidence in their own abilities to be master of their own destiny, made them look vulnerable. There had also been a major earthquake during the reign of Asherdan III. And on June 15, 763 BC, during the reign of Asherdan III, there was a total solar eclipse over Syria. These people were probably nervous and superstitious. And then in the midst of this time, into the midst of their city comes a man who had been bleached white by the gastric stomach juices of a fish, who begins walking through the city saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I don't say that to, to, to arrive at a less than supernatural reason for why they responded to what Jonah said. I just think that it's God's MO that he very often, there's a, there's a way of preparing a person to hear his message. There's a way that God works with the, by the Holy Spirit and through our circumstances to bring us to a place where we are ready and prepared to hear the word that God has for us. And if God is in fact calling you to go to a person or to a people with the message that he would have you share with them, you need to be trusting that out of you, he has been also speaking to them, preparing them for that encounter. I can't guarantee it will go well. I can't say that. But I can say that God's purposes will be will be perfectly realized when we respond in obedience. If God has been urging you to go to someone, I think it stands to reason that God has been preparing that person in ways that may not be visible. Or maybe, and here I'll close with this, maybe you're the one being warned. (laughs) Maybe you're not a Jonah this morning, but you're a Ninevite. And God has been speaking to you about sin in your life and its potential consequences. He's been calling you to repent, to cease and desist, to stop. And maybe the word for you is this like a verse out of Joel. Joel chapter 2, it says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments." Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Guys, those words could belong to you if you have been continuing in patterns of sin that are out of view but known to God. And he's been calling you and warning you and pursuing you. Or Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we'll leave it right there for chapter three. I hope you can come back next week, though. We're going to take up chapter four. I think, I haven't actually tested this, but I think it's the only book of the Bible that ends with a question mark. And that's where things will end up next week as well, when we come back together and study chapter four. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know my heart better than I do, and you certainly know the hearts of the people here in this room better than I can see. Father, you know us perfectly, and uh, Father, we ask you, Lord, to continue this conversation with us in the quiet places of our heart long after we've left this building here this morning. Father, maybe some here in this room are like Jonah. We have been resisting your calling to go somewhere or to someone. And uh, God, you have been patient in your pursuit of our hearts. And maybe, God, we've come up with all kinds of reasons why we can't, that we're not good with words or whatever it might be. I don't know. But God, you have just, in in chapter 3, destroyed any reason we might have for not going in obedience. God, even if our heart is not yet right, the time for obedience is now. And even as we go, we ask you, Lord, to, to give us a heart to go with the command. Fit your messengers to the message. But God, we're so grateful that you remember that we're made of dust that until the day of Jesus's return we will not be perfect and we will always be advancing with a limp but God it is better to advance towards Nineveh slowly shambling than it is to run to Tarshish and so God I pray that you would help us cause us to be advancing towards Nineveh with a limp if need be but God maybe someone is here this morning and, and really they need to pay attention to the mercy that you showed the Ninevites and that the Ninevites God repented they turned in repentance and now God we give you, so thankful, we give you such, such thanks that you are a gracious and a merciful God and of course God we know from your word how serious sin is to you and God I pray that you would by your Holy Spirit give us the capacity for repentance God, help us to turn from that which is dishonoring to you towards that which is closest to your heart. So, Father, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the way you have spoken to us out of it. And pray, Lord, that you would continue this conversation by your Holy Spirit as we go out from this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.